Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege of reading your word, of thinking about uh, where your word comes from. Uh, build our faith, affirm us, um, encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, so, hey guys. So the, the, the argument that is so prevalent in our culture, um, that is not even sort of even examined, uh, because in many ways it's been debunked so thoroughly, but at least there's a ton of scholarship that sort of uh, goes against it. But the myth out there is that the Bible is really the accidental product of this tumultuous history, um, right? And and it sort of came to be because of the because of the the political and you know the social context of the time, just sort of like the tumult of of events, and it then creates a great deal of doubt in our minds <coughs> because how can we trust that the Bible is the Word of God that it's from uh, that is uncorrupted, right? And uh, I want to assure you, as we've been talking about this, and last week we, we talked about this, that Jesus um, deliberately and, and thoughtfully commissioned the New Testament. So, Jesus commissioned his apostles to be eyewitnesses, right? And so he commissions. And through their oral teachings... So their preaching ministry, right? So for example, at Pentecost when Peter was preaching, and then through their written accounts, they're not just ad-libbing, right? They're not just um, making it up as they go along, but they are deliberately, self-consciously reproducing the teachings that Jesus commissioned them to to give, right? And uh, the written accounts are the New Testament documents. New Testaments, New Testament documents. Okay? So, let's read this passage. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, the New Testament writings are apostolic testimony commissioned by Christ. So, Andrew, can you read Luke 1? And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have taught. Yes. So, um, Luke says that the apostle, that there, there are eyewitnesses, right? And we talked about this last week, that this is emphasized over and over again, that these are people who lived with Jesus, these are people who saw him resurrected. They are witnesses to that fact. And notice the way uh, Luke puts it, right? In verse 2 he says, Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So what is he saying there? We talked about this actually with Hebrews last week. What is he saying? He's not an apostle. That's right. So Luke does not include himself as an eyewitness. Right? He is not a witness of the resurrected Christ, just like Hebrews, just like, for example, the Gospel of Mark. So what do we do with these um, three? So we have uh, Luke, Hebrews. Hebrews said the exact same thing. Uh, we have Mark. Um, and let me just say, first of all, that notice that the writers, I mean, if the account, the skeptical account is true, which is that the New Testament is basically propaganda documents from one camp. That there was multiple uh, fighting camps in Christianity, and these are propaganda documents. Why would you say, oh, I'm not an original eyewitness? But notice that they are very clear to demarcate what, who is an eyewitness and who is not, because this was incredibly important. Um, and so this distinction is made. And what uh, Luke is saying is that uh, I'm not an original eyewitness, but... I'm with the eyewitnesses, right? 
he's in the apostolic circle, right? He travels with uh, Paul. Actually, Luke, we don't even know uh, from the Lucan account that Luke wrote Luke. Because <laughs> it doesn't say this is from Luke. Like, for example, Paul says, you know, I'm Paul. Um, we only know it's Luke because, first of all, from the textual clues, um, uh, Luke wrote Acts, and in the middle of the Acts journey, he starts using the pronoun we. So uh, he joins the party, he joins the missionary travels. And then we also know from early church accounts, everyone universally said this is, this is Luke, this is the companion of Paul. Um, and what this means then is that uh, the New Testament self-consciously sees itself as um, written by the first generation of eyewitnesses. And I think it's very helpful if I could just draw it graphically for you guys. Okay, so this is 0 AD. Um, Christ uh, was crucified. We're, we're not exactly sure, but, you know, around 33 AD. Uh, and then here's the year 100. Here's the year 200. Here's the year 300. And as we said before, right, it wasn't until the middle of the 4th century that the canon was firmly established that there was universal agreement. What's the canon, really quickly? Yes, very good. But, you know, that's sort of like the colloquial way of saying it. What, 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 what does canon mean? It authorizes quality of works. Yes, good. It, it's, it literally means list. Uh, actually, it literally means rule. But we're, we're thinking about it as a, uh, an authorized, authoritative list of books, right? Because the New Testament, I mean, the Bible doesn't contain within itself a table of contents, right? So it wasn't until the middle of the 300s that we have universal agreement on the 27 books of the New Testament. And so people look at that and say, um, well, that means that there was no such thing as a New Testament until this, it was invented in the middle of the 4th century. But that's not true. And, and so let me just plot out some dates. The first New Testament document is probably Paul's Galatians. Right? That's a remarkable date because basically that's 15 years after the death of Christ. Um, and then the last book is probably Revelation. Um, probably like somewhere around 90 to 95. And so basically the New Testament is written in this period, okay? Um, the moment the New Testament is written, as we said last week, it was immediately recognized by the early church that this is the very words of God. And it's not until the late 100s that we have the first canonist, the Moratorium Fragment. I believe it's 170. And why did it take until, you know, what would this be? Like 80 years after the end of the New Testament before we have the first canon list, right? The answer is because the New Testament canon was always just implicitly accepted, right? Everyone just knew these are the words of God, right? Everyone always had an understanding that, that this was scripture. And as I said before, um, um, almost most of the books were never contested. So the four Gospels were immediately recognized. Did you guys know that the most pop which 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 do you think was the most popular gospel? Like in terms of, we have like actually, you know, copies and fragments. I'm wondering if Andrew knows. You know which one is the most popular of the four gospels? Isn't it Mark? It's John. It's John. They loved John. So we have tons of John copies for some reason, right? Actually the first copy of John is one twenty five. Right? This is um we have uh, an actual physical copy of the Gospel of John. It's a fragment that, you know, you carve and date, or I don't know how they date it, but it's dated to 125. So that's just like 35 years after. And the uh, the New Testament documents, by the way, they, it was hands down probably the most popular written works in the 
in the uh, the first centuries, in the antiquity, because there's just so many copies. It just immediately exploded, right, all around the Mediterranean world. And by far, we have the most amount of documentary evidence of the New Testament than any other document that comes from the ancient world until we get to the modern era, right? Um, so, for example, right, there's, uh, you know, the popular example is um, the Gaelic Wars written by Caesar, right? Uh, Caesar conquered Gaul, which is modern-day France. He wrote uh, what's called the Commentaries on the Gaelic War. Uh, we don't have copies of that, like extant copies, meaning copies that we can actually carbon date, a thousand years after it was written. But nobody contests that this is actually C- Julius Caesar writing it. Nobody contests that this actually came from antiquity uh, for a very simple reason. It doesn't matter to anybody whether Caesar conquered Gaul or not. It does, it's like, oh, I have to change my life now, <laughs> right? But it matters whether Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's a lot of prejudice. And there's a lot of um, um, bias against accepting the early days of the New Testament. But let me just go on. So the scripture, uh, the, the early church immediately accepted um, as scripture, meaning this is the word of God. This is from God. Um, the four gospels, um, the 13 letters of Paul, That was immediately accepted. Everyone uh, 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 knew this is, uh, it, it, it was never contested. So basically, if you look at the canon list, right, the moratorium fragment, and the problem with the moratorium fragment, can anyone remind me, or does anyone remember what was the problem with the moratorium fragment? Like, why that doesn't settle things? Like, why did it take until here? Didn't have all the books. Yes! Right? So it excludes certain books, right? I, I forget exactly what they were, but it excludes Hebrews, James, uh, I believe Second Peter. Um, it excludes uh, Second and Third John, right? So that makes people really feel like, you know, why are these books missing? And basically what you have is um, you have the core of the canon solid. Like, nobody ever disputes it. Like, after the moratorium fragment, we have a whole bunch of canon lists, right? And they're all disagreeing with each other on the outskirts. Nobody disagrees on the basics, right? But they disagree, like, and, and, you know, first Peter, um, uh, several others, I forget, you know, uh, uh, yeah, well, Timothy would be the Pauline Paul. canon. Um, but, uh, the subsequent canon list, right, they would all disagree on these, oh, and then Revelation is in it, but a lot of people also disagreed on Revelation, right? So we'll just put it like this. So what happens is, you have multiple canon lists, and sometimes they would include Hebrews, and like this, or sometimes they would include James and Revelation, but they would exclude Hebrews and so forth, right? So you basically have a whole patchwork of canon lists, in which they're all trying to figure it out. And then it's not until the middle of the 300s where it crystallizes and there's a universal agreement on the 27 books. Everyone agrees the 27 books of the New Testament canon. This is it, and it's never disputed again from that point forward, right? Um, so do you think that the fact that we found a fragment from 170 indicates that the canon list is probably much older than that? Do we just even have a copy of it yet? Oh, so the moratorium fragment is not, it's just a list. And um, it's a list, okay, so let me explain why there's even a list, okay? So why is there this huge time gap between the end of the New Testament and the writing of a list, right? Before basically somebody writes a table of contents, right? And the reason is because there was a, a guy, a heretic named Marcion. And Marcion basically said, um, the Old Testament God is evil, New Testament God is good, uh, and therefore all the New Testament books that affirm like this Old Testament God, uh, so Matthew, um, Hebrews, you know, all of these things that talk a lot about the Old Testament, that's not from God. You know, he really liked Luke, he really liked Paul's letters like Galatians, Ephesians, and so the Moratorium Fragment was written saying, no, Marcion, you're wrong. You know, these are the words of God, and this is why um, the canon list came out. And then what happened is somewhere, so we can't 100% be sure when, but somewhere late in the, in the second century, 
Okay? And it goes on. What happens is you have these alternate books called the Gnostic Gospels. Okay? And then a lot of the canon lists are basically saying these alternate accounts are not true as well. So that's what happens, okay? Now, now, let me just say, so the whole point I'm trying to make, right, is that the New Testament scriptures were never contested. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Um, no one included any alternate books other than the New Testament accounts with, with two exceptions. Okay, so I need to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, something called the Shepherd of Hermes. <coughs> and see, now we're really getting into the nitty-gritty, right? Epistle of Barnabas. Okay, so the moratorium fragment mentions the Shepherd of Hermes. Okay, now let me explain what happened. So you have these two books, right? And they were written right here in the, the second century. And the moratorium fragment mentions this book, but it doesn't say this is from the Word of God. It just says this. It says, a lot of people like to read the Shepherd of Hermes, but we know that it was written recently, and so it's not from, it's not an apostolic eyewitness account. So that's really interesting, right? Because basically what you have is the early church immediately knew the standards, the criteria of the canon, which is what? That it has to be from the first century. It has to be eyewitnesses, uh, a living generation with Jesus. Shepherd of Hermes was written too late, so they say it cannot be. Other lists also include Epistle of Barnabas, but they never include them as canon. They basically say these are good uh, uh, devotional books to read. So it's kind of like the equivalent of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity or John Stott's Basic Christianity. These are recommended, helpful books that you can read. And so these are the uh, uh, books that are mentioned along with. Does that make sense? In fact, there's um, there's a uh, uh, we actually have like later on we have like stacks of books together, and then sometimes these will be included as well. And so. Where am I? Okay, so uh, so you basically have no other books other than the New Testament, and the only two books that are even mentioned are these two, and they don't contradict the New Testament. They were considered orthodox, helpful, devotional books, but the church already knew that they were not from God, that they were written too late. And right there you have the idea of the closing of the canon. We talked about this last week. How do we know the canon has closed? How do we know the New Testament, there's no 28th book or so on? You guys remember? John knew, so I'll pick on John again. How do we know the canon is close? Because there's no verse in the Bible that says the book of Revelation is the, is the last book, right? Don't they validate each other? Like, if there was a 28th book or something like created... Uh, well, I don't know how they validate each other, right? Because there's like another book that other contradicts what's the list or something. Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Never mind. There's no more apostles. Keep going. So if it has to be written by an apostle to be in the canon, then you can't have more books. That's right. So the close of the canon is implicit because the criteria for the word of God is that you're from the apostolic circle. You don't have to necessarily be an apostle, as I said. You have these three books. But you have to be in the first generation. It has to be a first century book. So the only books that count can even be considered are first century books. And the only books that are first century books that are Christian, is the 27 New Testament canon. Right? That's it. That's the answer. And so, uh, I think that gives us a great deal of assurance. And so, the, the whole skeptical argument, and let me, let me just draw out the skeptical argument, because um, I think it'll help us to see. So, the whole skeptical argument is, if we do the exact same timeline, right? Oops. So if we did the exact same timeline, this is Christ, I'm just doing an abbreviation in Greek for Christ, 100, 200, 300, okay? So everyone agrees, universal agreement. Whoops. 
So this is the skeptical view, okay? The skeptical view is that the New Testament was not written in the first century. The New Testament was written along with all the other Gnostic Gospels here. Okay? And it was a huge free-for-all fight. You have Hebrews along with uh, the Gospel of Thomas, that's a Gnostic book, with the Gospel of Truth, and then they're duking it out. You have two rival camps, or multiple rival camps of Christianity, and finally, Emperor Constantine rises a day, he says, look at all the different Christianities, I pick you guys, you're the winners, and, the, and what's called the Orthodox camp says, hooray, we win, and then let's write down our propaganda books, these are the 27, and then let's burn all the other books, because they're, they're evil, we vanquished them, ah, and that's the story, right? And there are huge problems with the story. First of all, right? Oh, so first of all, let me explain what are the Gnostic Gospels. This is a very chaotic class. <laughs> I, the fact that you laugh, you know, hurts me. <laughs> Gnosticism. Okay, so, so what is Gnosticism? So Gnosticism was an early heresy, and basically it was really an accommodation to the culture of the day, to the times, to the, to the early world, the ancient world, because the ancient world had this view that the physical world is yucky and gross. I totally understand, because you have to understand that um, there was disease, there was, uh, there was poor sanitation, um, People died all the time, and so there was this feeling like the physical world—the physical world—is broken and gross. It's like this big hoax, you know. It's kind of like the Matrix, right? Where uh, everyone's plugged into the Matrix, and it's just this big evil trap because of the architect. And that's the way most people thought of the physical world. The, the goal is to escape, and 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 so Gnosticism is basically a combination of Christianity and that cultural view. And then they came out with a whole bunch of of their own books, right? And the reason why we know they exist is, first of all, that uh, starting around the, the mid-third, um, starting around the mid-third century, um, you have a bunch of Christian writers saying the Gnostic Gospels are wrong, right? Um, and you have quotations why they're wrong, but then we don't actually have any copies of the Gnostic Gospels. Until Nag Hammadi. So what happened is in 1945, so, no, so this is the 400. So there's basically, what happened is 1945 in southern Egypt, and the reason why it's southern Egypt is because papyrus documents are extremely fragile. They need to be in dry climates. Um, archaeologists discovered this treasure trove of 52 documents. And they date it to roughly the mid-400s, and it contains the Gnostic Gospels. And everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. We never had this before, because they were all, all of them had been burned and banished. It's true, right? They were all eliminated. And we, we find, this, we find the, the Gnostic Gospel, and we say, aha, what that means is that the, 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 the New Testament and the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospels, they were duking it out. But the, the problem here, right, is that the problem is, where, where, where am I in my logic here? Um, <laughs> the, the problem, right? The problem is that the, the dates are all wrong because, again, you have fragments. So the earliest fragment is the Gospel of John in 125. I just saw, like, two weeks ago, they think they found, and this is very preliminary, they think they found a copy of Mark that dates around 90. Um... And even better than that, you have quotations. So you have Christian pastors quoting the New Testament here in the second century. So it, so this whole theory cannot be true. And why do we have this theory then? It's because it's not examined anymore. It's like nobody... Um, like So basically, there's three camps of scholarship, right, I would say. So there's the evangelical scholars, there's sort of the uh, secular scholars, and then there's the radical skeptics. So this would be the Jesus Seminar, 
This group gets all the press. This is what Time Magazine and Newsweek publishes all the time. Um, and then you have this, this, these other two groups, right, secular and evangelical scholars, and this consensus is that the New Testament is here. Right? For all the reasons, there's quotations, it matches the historical time, there's, you know, it, it, it fits all the historical criteria. We have fragments that date very early. And so that's my presentation. I don't know, it's, it's very chaotic. Does anyone have any questions about that? <laughs> all right. So let's move on. Oh, so, uh, 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 okay, so what do we do with, with this? The Gnostic Gospels, right? So I think this troubles a lot of people. Why are there alternate accounts of Jesus, right? And the answer is within the New Testament itself that um, Jesus warns us there will be false teachers, there will be false prophets. Remember we talked about that in the uh, Mark chapter 13 just a few weeks ago. And the reason is because human beings hate the gospel. And they'll always think of ways to um, distort the gospel because the gospel offends us. It tells us that we're sinners saved by grace. And the reason why um, it's very important that we get the gospel right is not because we're being theologically fussy. It's because um, we're saved by grace, meaning we're saved by our belief in Christ, not by what we do. So let me just let me, let me just go to some uh, passages. For example, Galatians chapter 1. Can I have John read Galatians 1 for us? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Yeah, so notice, and Galatians is the first letter, right? We think it's the first letter. Notice that immediately, right, this is just 15 years into the birth of the church, Paul is already saying, there's no other gospel, meaning there are other gospels, meaning um, there's alternate ways of understanding Christianity, understanding what Jesus did. And notice Paul doesn't say, yeah, it's a spectrum, you know, there's different views, who knows, right? He's saying, no, there's no other gospel, there's only the one that Christ has taught us. But notice that he acknowledges there are alternate competing views. Right? And therefore, we ought not to be scandalized or we ought not to be traumatized the fact that later on we have these alternate accounts. Right? So, for example, Second Peter. Can I have, uh, can I have uh, Rachel read? But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Yeah, so Peter says, expect alternate forms of Christianity. Um, this does not mean that there's no true form of Christianity, but rather that there's false versions. And again, notice the way Peter puts it, because of their sensuality. right? So because of their desire for comfort and, and their own flesh, they're going to distort the gospel truth. Um, all right, so I'm going to go on to the next section about the Old Testament before we move on. Any questions? I apologize for the chaotic presentation. I was actually working on the sermon simultaneously. So I always have to like measure which one gets short shift. Any questions? Okay. The, the Gnostic Gospels are not entirely bad though, right? Um, like <clears throat> what do you mean? Um, like in the same way that Maybe something John Stott said or C.S. Lewis said would be, um, we'd consider actually, I don't know. I don't yeah, so I mean like the most famous Gnostic gospel would be Gospel of Thomas. Uh, actually, ma majority of them are just rips from the regular gospels. Yeah. It's a saying's gospels. So, but there's a few lines that yeah. are really, like we would not recognize at all mm -hmm. as, as Orthodox truth. Yeah. Other gospels are much more, they have a much more strong agenda. Mm -hmm. I guess you're right. So but I mean, but but yeah. all but all um, alternate or distortions of the yeah. truth will have part of the truth, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we can say that about the Quran. Yeah. Not all, yeah. Not all the Quran is bad. Yeah. And, I, and so we had those three camps: the evangelical, secular, and the secular radical. Radicals, radical. yeah. Radical. But they're like you said, going your part. There's usually some truth in their argument. There must be something that they have a leg to stand on, right? Otherwise, 
from a scholarly standpoint, they wouldn't okay, yes. have anything. Yeah, so, so this is what they do. They say the Gospels, I mean, the New Testament is very, very, very late. Mm-hmm. The reason is because they say we don't have actual physical copies from the first century. Mm-hmm. So we can never know. That's the only criteria I'll accept. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an unreasonable criteria, first of all, because if that criteria is true, then we don't know anything about anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, they only apply that standard because, and this is what they say, well, we don't dispute, for example, the Gaelic Wars because no miracles are claimed. When miracles are claimed in the New Testament, therefore there's a higher standard of truth. Um, that's a completely philosophical big bias, but the, 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 the deep bias is they don't want it to be true. Because if the New Testament came from the first century, if these are eyewitness accounts, then we're confronted with a very difficult problem. Jesus, how do we explain that we have hundreds of people seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead? How do we explain, how do we account for that? So there's a, a lot of bias, but they say we'll only accept it if we have actual physical copies, and this is why they'll date the New Testament to the, to the third century, to the fourth century, because then we have like large, you know, uh, uh, um, a lot of uh, documents mm-hmm. that we can actually date to that period. But the problem with that is we have fragments. So do they just ignore the fragments? So this is what the fragments are, right? Like, let's say this is a papyrus of Mark, right? So the radical scholars will basically say, I want this. Give me this. I'm going to date a portion of it. Ah, it's, you know, 4th century. That's when Mark was written, okay? But the problem is you have fragments, and papyrus is very, very, very fragile. And so you have, like, little, like, segments, like this, right? And it can be disputed, basically. Um, and so I think that's what's happening with the radical scholars. Actually, the radical scholars in general have been discredited because because of these fragments, majority of secular scholars. So, for example, if you go to Wikipedia, right, they'll date the New Testament to the first century because... The, the scholarship has shifted. And we have quotations. I don't understand how like you can just ignore the quotations. So you have you have time. But then they'll say, okay, all the quotations are from the church fathers, but we don't have exact copies, physical copies of the church fathers until, again, way late. Mm-hmm. All of this is just unreasonable stuff. Like, for example, how do we know, how do you know that we landed on the moon? I don't know if you guys know this, but there's a big conspiracy that it was all staged by NASA. Mm-hmm. That it was on a movie sound stage and they, they, they filmed it, right? Neil Armstrong carrying a flag, right? Mm-hmm. How do you actually know that we landed on the moon? Well, I would say, look, if you're, if you're that conspiratorial, you don't know anything, <laughs> right? Um, you, like, based on historical standards, it's just unreasonable. Three camps, oh, like the scholars, right? Well, I mean, yeah, so there's many, many, but I'm just grouping them into easy to understand groups. So there's Christian scholars, there's non Christian scholars, and then there's like, really, I don't believe it at all. The New Testament is (laughs) totally made up. The, The New Testament is totally made up, they get all the attention, even though nobody respects them, nobody listens to them. But they sell the most books. Because basically, when you discredit Christianity, you get a lot of pressures. Um, is this the or is the apocrypha going to be talked about? Or yes, we'll talk about the apocrypha. Yes, 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 yes. Although I've completely mismanaged my time as usual, so we'll see. <laughs> uh, all right. So the Old Testament. So how do we know the Old Testament is from God? Now, if you think the New Testament is a problem, wait till you get to the Old Testament, right? <laughs> because let me draw a timeline of the Old Testament. So this is 0 AD. Um, the last uh, Old Testament document is Malachi, which would be 400. And then you have um, you have the exile at 700. You have uh, King David at 1000 BC. This is all BC, by the way. Um, and then you have 1600 BC. We think he's Moses. There's big debates about that, too. Um, so this is so if, 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 if the first five books of the New Testament... The Torah is written by Moses, and Malachi is the last book. Okay, what is that? What time period is that? It's a thousand-year period. 
in which the Old Testament books were written. These are 39 books. Okay? There is no canon list. Nobody ever sat down and wrote a canon list. Right? So how do we know that Genesis to Malachi is the Old Testament? And here's the answer, and it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel weird. It's just that, the answer is just that they've always just accepted it. Right? It was never disputed. The reason why there's no canon list is because there was never an argument. The reason why there are Christian New Testament canon lists is because there were arguments. There were no arguments. And so nobody contests, including the radical scholars, nobody contests that the 39-book canon was widely, universally, implicitly accepted. No one disputed it. Okay? Now, here's the question, right? How do we know um, that the Old Testament is true? And the answer is because of Jesus. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. So, here's the thing, right? When Jesus was born, there was an Old Testament canon, right? And and he constantly refers back to it. So, let me just uh, read you some passages. Um, Mark chapter 12. Uh, where are we? I have Ashley in Mark 12. Please. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, so Jesus here, he's debating um, with, the, with, the, with the scribes, and he quotes Psalm 110, and he tells us a few things. Number one, he says, David wrote Psalm 110, right? Actually, um, if you look at Psalm 110, it says of David, but it's in one of the titles. So he affirms the title. He says the title is true. And then he says, notice he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared meaning that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, meaning that the ultimate author of Psalm 110 is not David. It's someone behind David who is the Holy Spirit, who is God. And therefore, God wrote Psalm 110, right? This confirms what 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's another amazing passage, Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. Um, where are we? Sarah, can I have you read Matthew 19? Jesus answered, do not write that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not, want, not man separate. Let not man separate, right. So, Jesus says, he who created them from the beginning. Who is he talking about? Who's the one who created Adam and Eve? God, okay? So he says God, and then he says in verse 5, God, what did he do? He said, right? And then he quotes God, okay? But the problem with the quote, Sarah, is that he's, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2.24. So let me just take you back to the original text. If you look at Genesis 2.24, verse 24, is God, is that a quote of God? <clears throat> no. It's just a statement. It's just commentary. It's just Moses writing this. But who does Jesus say is the ultimate author of Genesis 2.24? Jesus says, God said, right? Let not, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, um, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife, right? So basically, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that everything Moses wrote is the very words of God. So all of this, we don't know the exact dates. <laughs> we don't even necessarily know the authors a lot of times. But Jesus confirms for us, because the canon existed, right? The Old Testament canon existed, and he constantly refers back to it, and he says it is by God. I only gave you two examples, but there are many, 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 many more examples of it. Okay? What about the Apocrypha? Yes? Um, so I've actually been wondering about that as well. How, how do you, how, what, what is the argument versus the fossil record versus BC versus the dinosaur so dinosaurs, right. So, so the Bible is a very selective account of the story of salvation. The Bible seems like a very long book, but it's actually a very small book in terms of like what can be written and what can be said. The Bible only tells you what you need to know to know God, to live a life that pleases Him, to know salvation. And so dinosaurs, in that respect, as much as it's interesting to you, 
is irrelevant. <laughs> so it's going to eliminate... I mean, for example, you see this all the time. Like, if you're a historian and you read First and Second Kings, you're very frustrated because you want to know about the geopolitics, you want to know about the socioeconomic situation, you want to know all of these interesting things, but a lot of times they'll just talk about the morality of the king. The king loved the Lord. No, he hated God. He worshipped Baal. He worshipped idols. And you're like, this is a very unsatisfying historical account. That's because it's not a history. In a modern sense, it's a salvation history. It's a story of does that answer your question? Yes. Okay, good. So, uh, what about the Apocrypha? Ah, so, here we go. Right, so this is called the Intertestamental Period, a 400-year period, and we have a ton of documents written during that period, um, some of which we now call the Apocrypha. Apocrypha. Okay, which basically means hidden or secret books, and who accepts the Apocrypha, or what's the problem here? Roman, Ro- Romans, yes, Roman Catholics, the Catholics, okay? So this is a problem. Why do we as Protestants not accept the Apocrypha? So the Apocrypha are books like First and Second Maccabees, uh, Tobit, uh, my favorite Apocrypha book, Bell and the Dragon. It's a very fun story if you ever want to read that story. Um, so there's, uh, I forget how many exactly, but there's a whole bunch of books that were written during this period that the Roman Catholic accepts as the word of God, and we don't. And that puts doubt in our minds. A lot of times people will say, see the Roman Catholics, you guys disagree on the canon. The answer is this, okay? The, the Apocrypha was never, never accepted as part of the Old Testament canon. The Roman Catholics agree on that too, okay? It was always considered helpful, interesting, but not scripture. And what happened is, all the way... In the Reformation, right, so around 1600, when the Protestants and the Catholics were debating issues like purgatory, um, um, what, what other issues were they debating? Um, justification. Yes, justification. Uh, I'm thinking of something very specific, though. Um, uh, so they were debating issues like purgatory. So the Catholics said, aha, all of these doctrines are affirmed in the Apocrypha, or, or they're suggested in the Apocrypha. So at the Council of Trent in 1600, they affirmed the Apocrypha is the Word of God. And then the Protestants in turn said, no, it is not the Word of God. And so who is right? I would say Jesus is right. Jesus never quotes the Apocrypha. The New Testament never quotes the Apocrypha because the Apocrypha was never part of the Old Testament canon. It was never thought of as the Word of God. It's the Roman Catholics doing it 1,600 years after the fact because it helped them in the Reformation debate on issues like purgatory and justification. Yeah. Any answers? Yes. Any questions? I don't have an answer. I have a question. Yes, <laughs> so, so then how you're saying that Jesus affirms the Old Testament and the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. Is every Old Testament book quoted somewhere in the New Testament? Yeah, I, I believe it's except Esther. What do we do with Esther? The answer is very simple. Esther was in the Old Testament canon. It was considered a collection of scripture. So when Jesus quotes anything from the canon, and he quotes from it voluminously, mm-hmm. somebody has argued, and I think they, they could be right, and I actually want to do this one day, that everything Jesus said was either a direct, direct quotation, a paraphrase, or an allusion to Old Testament. He never said anything original. He was just weaving together Old Testament. He was so soaked in it. He just didn't quote Esther. So, I don't know if that's the answer. As far as, like, everything, we know that in the Gospels don't record every single thing that Jesus said. Yes. Do you think that they picked those things because it was the most relevant? Yeah. I mean, John says, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill a library of books. So it's a very selective account of Jesus' life. In fact, uh, we now think in many ways, for example, the Sermon on the Mount was never just one sermon. He probably did it every town he went to. He probably gave it 20 times, which is partially why the disciples knew it word for word, which is why Luke and Matthew's Sermon on the Mount sound different. Because as any good preacher will do, they'll vary it up a little bit, they'll change it up, because, you know, can't just say, say the same thing over and over again. Kind of like a campaign speech. Very good, yeah. All right. Oh, dear. All right, so what do we do with contradictions in the Bible? All right, 
So, so I wanted to, I wanted to answer two major objections that people have with the Bible. One is contradictions. Okay. So let me just give you the down and dirty answer. So most people say there's two types of passages that they understand. I understand this passage; it doesn't bother me. And then there are contradictions. Contradictions and problems. Okay? So you read a passage and you say, I like it, good. Or you say, contradictions, problems. And I want to suggest a third category, which is how we should read the Bible, which is instead of putting stuff in here, there's a third category, which is, I don't understand. And you should say, I understand this passage, and I don't understand this passage, and leave it in this bucket, and don't move it here. You know why? Several reasons. Number one, you're dealing with the Word of God. You don't sit in judgment over God. You sit under God, receiving what He says. And if He says something that doesn't make any sense to you, or seems like a contradiction, or you don't like it, instead of immediately saying, I, I reject it, it's a problem, it's, it's an error, put it right here, and just say, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll figure it out later on. I'll just put it as an uh, unknown category. And let me just give you a very good example of this. For a long time, there was scholars used to think that um, there used to be uh, multiple names for God in the Old Testament. So there was you know, Elohim, there was El, there was Yahweh. And they had this theory. Why would like God have so many names? Or it must be that these are different camps and different authors, and they all have like one name for God, and then that is you're patching up all the scripture. But now we know this is very normal, right? That peop- ancient peoples, you often had, a single person would often have multiple names. If you ever read Russian novels, you know this is true. So instead of jumping to conclusions, you should just wait and hold, right? And um, I'm going to skip Mark 12. I'm going to go immediately to the pick and choose uh, objection. Any questions about this? So are there contradictions in the Bible? just, you know, don't jump to conclusions. And actually, many, in many times, contradictions are actually paradoxes. Okay, so don't Christians just pick and choose what they want to follow in the Bible? You see this all the time. So people say, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't eat shellfish, you shouldn't eat pork, you shouldn't wear clothing with two different kinds of threads. Um, and so you're just picking and choosing what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. And therefore, you're just, you're, 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 the Bible doesn't have weight. It doesn't have authority, right? So here's the Bible. And it has like three, you know, it has like laws, law one, law two, law three, you know, and we're being selected. You don't like law two, which says no pork, but you like law one, which says no, no, no homosexuality, right? So you're just picking and choosing. Here's the answer to that. That is a very, very disingenuous... I, By the way, I read this all the time. I see this all the time. And I just like... I get very frustrated, right? I get very upset. I feel heat up to my neck. Okay. <laughs> this is a very disingenuous way to read the Bible because you're completely ignoring the internal storyline of the Bible. Because they're not just random laws that you were picking and choosing... But Jesus himself specifically says some of the laws were designed as a placeholder. They were temporary. They were there to show you the holiness of God. We're not supposed to eat shellfish or pork because those are dirty animals. Not that because that, not that you know they're scientifically dirty or something like that, but they're metaphorically dirty. And don't eat dirty things because you because to be before the presence of God, you need to be holy. You need to be clean. And so, for example, Jesus says in. Uh, Where are we here? Jesus says in um, Mark chapter 7, listen. And Jesus said to them, Then then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and it is expelled? Listen. Thus he declared all foods clean. Right? So Jesus directly tells us some laws in the Old Testament are obsolete. So we have always recognized three kinds of law. Moral law. Um, ceremonial law that has to do with the temple that has to do with clean laws dietary kosher laws 
and in civil law, laws dealing with Israel as a nation. We as uh, uh, New Testament believers understand that the ceremonial laws and the civil laws no longer apply. The ceremonial laws, because Jesus himself specifically said they no longer apply, but because Hebrews tells us we don't need to do sacrifices anymore, and the civil laws is implicit. Why do we know the, the civil laws of the, of the Old Testament don't apply to us anymore? You're all close. Well, because there's this idea that the temple is now the body of Christ. Let me help you out. Huh? We don't live in Israel. Yes, very good. Because <laughs> there is no national Israel. Okay? So the ceremonial laws are, are gone. The civil laws are gone. So when people say you're just picking and choosing, you say you're, you're not being honest and reading the Bible correctly. We believe that the moral laws reflect the character of God and they last forever. And so the question is, the question with homosexuality is, is it a ceremonial law, is it a civil law, or is it a moral law? That's the debate. So I understand that Jesus like basically brought a new order and so a lot of Old Testament laws are but in the New Testament there's also portions right where we don't do exactly what Paul said, right? So like head coverings for women and so how do you decide how much of that is culturally relevant to that? And that's the, the explanation that I've heard for why we don't you know make so, so this is where that threefold category I think is really helpful, right? Rather than saying, aha, um, you know, we're just picking and choosing, uh, we should just put it in the I don't understand category. But what do we, how do we decide which ones to obey? Right, like, because I don't... Right, so wh- what I would say is there are certain commands in the New Testament that seem very clear to us. Mm-hmm. And in some ones, like, for example, head coverings, we would say, I don't understand, especially because it, they don't talk about it anywhere else in the New Testament. It's just that single passage, right? Uh, where is it? First Corinthians something, somewhere. Um, so I would say we need to approach it with humility. But secondly, if you understand the logic behind what Paul says, he's talking about uh, male and female relations in the church. right? And so I think that's what he's getting at. It's a culture. Like, for example, he says, um, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a way of you know showing affection and warmth. So I would like to kiss you, Jeff, but I, I will refrain because in American culture, we just don't do that. It's just weird, you know? Um, so you have to understand what is a cultural expression of an eternal principle, which is, you know, that uh, women are supposed to show their submission by the head covering. So I've, I've seen a lot of people where they say, well, you know, what is that modern symbol today? We don't actually have one because we're such an egalitarian society. And so it's not necessarily applicable. But we can practice it, for example, in the church. We have male elders. <coughs> I don't know if that answers your question. It's pretty good. All right. I really apologize for the chaotic nature of the lesson, but let's pray. I didn't even talk about translations. Oh, that was so fun. All right. <laughs> King James Version is the only one. <laughs> no, no, no. So let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, opportunity to think and study, and I pray that rather than being filled with doubt and concerns about the about the Bible, we can feel strong assurance because Jesus tells us that your word, uh, that the Bible is the word of God, that we can um, base our life upon it, that has authority, that has weight over us. We pray this in his name. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, can I ask uh, some of you to erase the board and also put the chairs back around? I